Hi, it's Mark Wasserman. Welcome to the Skaboom podcast, which is the audio companion to my book, Skaboom, an American ska and reggae oral history. The goal of this podcast is to talk about ska with an emphasis on American ska history and the bands, musicians, and people who have helped to create and document a uniquely American version of ska and reggae that spans from the late 70s until today. In this episode, I'm speaking with Andrew Sacker, who is a senior editor at Brooklyn Vegan and one of the few journalists who is regularly writing about and covering ska music. Founded in 2004, Brooklyn Vegan is a New York-centric, multi-genre, mostly music blog that focuses on international music news, album and live show reviews, pictures, festivals, tour dates, gossip, tips, song and album streams, videos, industry and tech news, special events, and much more. Non-music stuff finds its way under their pages as well, including comedy, TV, movies, and burlesque. And every post comes with an open exchange of ideas via the public commenting system and social media. They also produce a lot of live events and have a radio show on Sirius XMU. To that end, Andrew is moderating Ska Lives, the continued legacy of American Ska, which is a live virtual event on the Brooklyn Vegan YouTube page this Monday, October 4th, that includes me, Aaron Carnes, author of In Defense of Ska, and Ken Partridge, author of Hell of a Hat. We will be exploring the question, why doesn't Ska get credit for being a rich, diverse genre the same way punk, metal, hip-hop, and electronic music does? In this episode, I'm turning the tables on Andrew and interviewing him about his Ska origin story and the important role that he is playing in covering American Ska music on Brooklyn Vegan. Andrew Sacker, welcome to the Ska Boom Podcast. Thanks for having me. Do you remember your Ska lightning bolt moment? Now, I realize Ska is not the only music that you like and not the only music that you listen to personally, but I'm curious how you got into Ska and if, if you remember what the band or the song was that got you excited about it in the first place. Yeah, I definitely do. Um, so... When I was first getting into music, my first love was punk, um, but I didn't know what it was called. So um, I went to my local record store and I was looking at the time for like Blink-182 and some 41 records. Um, and I was looking in the rock section and didn't see them. So I went to the clerk and I said, hey, um, you know, where would you have these Blink-182 and some 41 records? And he brought me to a section called Punk Slash Ska. So I had never heard of punk or ska, um, but I was like, I guess my favorite kind of music must be punk slash ska. So I started to dig in and kind of learn what each one was. And the real, the record that really did it for me was um, Less Than Jake's Losing Streak, which I got on a CD and just played the hell out of it. And like, I was just, and then there's that line on Johnny Quest Thinks for Sellouts where he's like, um, you know, maybe you just think ska just sucks. And I think that hearing that was like the moment where I was like, oh, so like ska's a thing. People have opinions on it. Some people think it sucks. Here's a band playing it. I think they're awesome. And I just wanted to hear more and more. So, you know, from there, it was like Catch-22, The Boston's, Rancid, and Operation Ivy, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, it really began with Losing Streak. Wow. So you're you're like a true child of the ska punk era. Is that totally, yeah. State? Yeah. Um, what are three ska records that are still in heavy rotation for you to this day? 
Well, definitely that one. You know, I mean, sometimes, you know, there's nothing like your first. Um, other than that, uh, let me think. It's, the only reason this question is hard is because there are so many answers. I know. Um, <laughs> well, well, I, how about just today's answer? Yeah, but I think, um, you know, again, like you said, I'm a student of the Scott Punk era for sure. But having gone back to two-tone and then back to the first wave of Jamaican stuff, um, honestly, I think one of my absolute most played records would be, if it counts as Sky, would be Funky Kingston by Toots and the Maytals at this point. Um, so I'll say that one and Losing Streak. And then um, I guess I'll just have to say Operation Ivy Energy. I mean, that is always on repeat. That's a pretty good, uh, on short notice, that's a pretty good threesome right there. I'd say, I'd say you got a lot of the bases covered. Thank you. <laughs> um, when did you start working for Brooklyn Vegan? Yeah, so I actually um, recently hit my 11-year mark. I started in August of 2010. And, and was being a music journalist, something that you aspired to from a young age, or did you sort of fall into this? Sort of the latter. I always wanted to be in music. Um, I mean, that was, music was like my number one thing since, I don't know, maybe since or honestly a really young age. I mean, when music was very important to me as a kid, like I took records really seriously. I didn't like necessarily know yet. Um, but you know, that was like important to me to like, go to the record store and, you know, buy albums and learn about the bands you're listening to. And then probably when I hit like 11, 12 is when I started to get immersed in my local music scene. And I just knew like, I'm going to be in music for life. Um, so I went to purchase college, um, majoring in what was called arts management. And the idea was that I would focus on music. I'd learn about the arts business, stuff like entertainment law, et cetera, et cetera. And I knew I was going to take it in a music direction. And I was simultaneously minoring in literature because I love reading and writing. It sort of never occurred to me to combine the two things. But uh, eventually, I ended up um, with uh, sort of a, a friend who was at Brooklyn Vegan. And I kind of was like, can you help get me a job? And he did. And it worked out. And when I started writing about music, it just kind of came so naturally. I was like, oh, yeah, I mean this is basically what I do all the time. Just like rant about why this music is so important why this band matters, why this record is great. And now I'm just doing it in written form. And it just was a really natural way for me to kind of do what I love most like professionally. Wow. I, I'm, I'm really curious to hear more about this major you had in college. I wish they'd had that major when I was in college. What what's what was the major again? Arts management. Yeah, arts management. It's relatively new. I think I was one of the first few graduating classes. Um, it's interesting. So it's at it's at Purchase College. I, it's definitely like not a common major. When when I was looking for schools, I basically looked anywhere sort of in the Northeast, especially in New York, that had something resembling a music business major, and those there's more of those. Like I know Syracuse has a really big music business program, but Purchase kind of created this arts management major and they let you take it in whatever art is the type of art you like. So like I was doing music, but I had people in the same major as me who were doing dance or visual art um, or performance art. So what they would do is everyone would take the same generic classes. Like again, entertainment law was one and like, um, like the, like a, 
sort of like the financial aspect of, uh, you know, like, like finances and accounting within the realm of uh, the art world and stuff like that. But then you would take courses in the field that you wanted to be in. So I took a lot of music courses. I took a class in songwriting. Um, can't totally remember all the others. It's been a while, but, um, but yeah, so it was cool because I got to kind of simultaneously be taking these music courses and then these business courses that were focused specifically on the art industry. Um, and yeah, it was a really fascinating major. I think I, I got a lot out of it. Wow. That that's one of the coolest things I've, I've heard. I mean, when I was in college, it was very traditional, you know, political science, biology, accounting. Um, I, I think this is fascinating, p- particularly because I don't think anyone necessarily prepares you for the business side of working in the arts. Um, in fact, as as a musician, I know that no one in any of the bands I've ever been in, for the most part, has a business head. Um, you know, you can be in situations when you're in a band where you start making money and you don't really know how to manage that or how to book a tour or just in general, what a band agreement is or anything like that. So I'm happy to hear that this is something that people at a fairly young age can start to learn um, because nothing really prepares you uh, to manage yourself or manage or help manage someone who has a career in the arts. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I definitely kind of felt that going into it. And I kind of originally thought that I might end up working at a record label. So that's why I felt like, oh, you know, if I can have business smarts, then I'll be able to do well at a label. And I interned at one and it just wasn't for me at all. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. What, I mean, cause I, I would think, and I felt the same way, although I never got a chance to work at a record label, but as someone like yourself who was sort of obsessed with music from a young age and sort of scoured albums and read liner notes and loved all aspects of like, you know, looking at a record and how a record was made. What was it about working at a record label that didn't uh, ultimately um, appeal to you? So I think, and maybe this will sound a little idealistic, but once business became part of the art, I started to lose a little bit of the love for the art. Like it was like, I would hear people on the phone talking about songs like, like commodities. And I was like, I want to be at a place where I can talk about a song like for the art of it not like for how much, how, how many copies you think you can sell of it. God bless you, Andrew. Um, I'm glad to hear that (laughs) because I would think that ending up at Brooklyn vegan would be, or, or, or anywhere where you could actually be a journalist would be more in line with probably what you hoped you would do when you were an arts, you know, in, in this arts program, right? Totally. Yeah. Um, when did you begin to make ska and ska music a bigger part of your editorial coverage at Brooklyn Vegan? Is that because of you? Was there someone there before you and you took over their beat? I'm sort of curious because um, it seems to me, and I read a lot of music media, a lot of music journalism, that Brooklyn Vegan really is one of the few places that continually, consistently Cover ska. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So um, as with, so Brooklyn Vegan is, is one of the reasons I love it so much and have been there for so long is because um, the people, the, the, the Dave who runs it is really open-minded. And um, I would say the answer to your question is a little complicated because I definitely was my initiative to start making ska something we really dove into. But 
even from before I was there, Brooklyn Vegan was always a place where you could find out about upcoming tours from the Toasters, the Slackers, the Mighty Mighty Boston's, of course, Two Tone, which I think Two Tone is pretty widely covered in general. Um, but there were like select um, ska bands that were always part of the Brooklyn Vegan coverage. And there was this writer who went by the pen name Klaus Kinski, and he is from the Boston ska scene. Uh, he's also from, I mean, he's done a lot. He's also like a huge hardcore guy, but he spent time in the Boston ska scene. And I think the late eighties, early nineties, he's played with musicians who have been in BIM Scala BIM and stuff like that. Um, and so he was kind of like our ska expert at first, but it was, it was all very like the sort of key bands that had, you know, been around in the, glory days, I guess, of like the American ska boom that were still around and kind of like had never, I guess, become uncool in the way some of this other stuff did. Um, but I, so I was happy when I started working there that, that those bands would be t- talked about because I was like, oh, great. Like, I love the Boston's. I'm glad that we consider them a band within our realm of coverage. But we didn't, for example, cover stuff like Less Than Jake. And like, we didn't cover, um, I, I don't know, like, you know, Goldfinger or something. And so eventually, like, uh, it was kind of a, it started slow. Like eventually, um, Les and Jake announced that they were playing Losing Streak in full. And again, it all comes back to Losing Streak for me. So I'm like, they're going to tour this album in full. And I said to the BV team, we should post about it because it might not be the coolest look in the world, but it's a really important album to me. I want to go to the show. Um, I think it'll be great. We should post about it. So we did. Um, and Fast forward, I think a couple of years, I think that was a 20th anniversary tour, which would have made that 2016. So a couple of years later, um, the Interrupters had that hit with She's Kerosene. And I was like, this is fascinating. There's a new band with an actual ska punk hit. That story alone, regardless of what you think of the genre, I think is great music news. So I was like, I pitched a story on She's Kerosene. Like we need to talk about this and why it's happening and why this is so strange at this point in music history that there's actually a ska band with a hit song on alternative radio. Like it, it was on, like it'd be played next to, you know, like, I don't know. I don't, I don't really, not a big radio fan, but like radio listener, but it, from my understand, it would be played next to whatever is like the big alternative stuff. Um, like, I don't know, be it like imagine dragons or vampire weekend or whatever it was. Apparently it was really infiltrating like big alternative radio. So I pitched that story And then like around the same time, a few other factors start to come up. Like on one hand, you know, we, like many other music publications, were writing a lot about Jeff Rosenstock's solo career. And I'm kind of thinking like, if Jeff Rosenstock's solo career is so critically acclaimed now, I think we should really be talking about like Arrogant Sons of Bitches and Bomb the Music Industry, even though those bands are broken up. But I think there's a lot of history to be told. So I started to want to like talk more about that because I felt like it was a story worth telling for people who might have been new to his career as he got big as a solo artist. And then, of course, there was Scott Network and Jeremy, who has done so much for the genre. And I thought what they were doing was really cool, doing these covers of songs that you know, people like who maybe don't listen to ska and they were doing them in a ska format. And I was like, Hey, like, if you like what Jeremy's doing, you might like ska. So there was kind of this, there was this sort of all these ingredients. There was the interrupters, Jeff Rosenstock, ska to network. And I'm like, okay, there's something here. Like ska is kind of in the air. I, like, I feel that there's enough happening from different 
areas within ska that like something is going to bubble up something's going to happen there's got to be more than this like you can't just if the interrupters have a hit that they're not the only ska band in the world like there's there's got to be more so i did an article and it was um the headline was 12 classic ska punk albums to prepare you for the upcoming ska punk revival (laughs) and yeah and i used this article to really for the first time in my career really write critically and seriously about albums like Losing Streak. And um, I did Rancid's Life Won't Wait because I feel like that's really their most Sky album. And I put Arrogant Sons of Bitches on that list. And I had Citizen Fish on that list. And um, Boston's were on it. Um, Operation Ivy, of course. Leftover Crack. Catch-22, Keys Be Nights, which was another really huge album for me growing up. Um, and I, I don't remember the whole list, but that gives you an idea. And so basically I was like, I want to talk critically about these classic ska punk records, partially because I want to do that in general, but also because I think there's going to be interest in the future. Like, I think this is only the beginning. And so at the end of the list, I said, if you like those classics, here are five new songs that you should check out. And I did She's Kerosene and... um I did a song by We Are the Union, who I actually found through Jeremy being in doing Scott Two Network, but then joining We Are the Union. So I'm a kind of a latecomer to them. I didn't really find We Are the Union until the Self Care album because of Jeremy. So I had a We Are the Union song. I had a song by this UK band called the Barstool Preachers, who they had collaborated with Amy Interrupter. Um, so I kind of found them, and I think they toured with the Bouncing Souls, who I love. So I kind of found them through that too. Um, I also included this song by this band Telethon who aren't a ska band, but they sometimes do ska in the context of like indie rock and punk. And I thought that was so fascinating that they were kind of similar to what Scott Generic was doing. They were bridging that gap or Jeff Rosenstock too. You know, they were like, they're, they're like, here's music that the indie rock community might like. And then we're going to sneak one ska song in our album. So I thought they were a good kind of gateway band. If you're like ska curious, but maybe more into indie rock and punk. Um, Man, for the life of me, I can't remember the fifth, fifth song I had, but that was the idea. So I, I kind of was like, here, you know, there. and then from there, again, I was like, there are five songs on that list, but there's got to be more. And I just kept digging. And I, I hate to say this, but it wasn't easy to find. Like it, it kind of took me a while to realize how much great Scott was happening currently. And what it really took was finding Bad Time Records. Once I found Bad Time Records, I was like, oh, everything this label puts out is fantastic this is it. This is what I've been looking for. I feel like I struck gold. Bad Time Records is the buried treasure of modern ska. This is where it all is. We've Here it is. People need to know about this. So I started to dig into Bad Time Records more. I started to get into Catbite. I was uh, um, into Kill Lincoln, who obviously Mike from Kill Lincoln runs that label. I started to write about those bands just kind of one by one. And then Ska Against Racism came out, the compilation that Bad Time Records put out with Asian Man Records, named after Mike Park's tour from 98, and Ska Punk Daily, the social media account that just like is all about ska. Um, and this, this compilation I thought was fantastic because not only was it for an amazing cause that I felt so strongly about, especially in the year 2020 with lockdown and the riots and the protests and everything, and um, but it was also, it brought together a lot of my favorite nineties ska punk bands with a lot of these new ska punk bands that I was getting really into, like as a current person. And I was like, this is it. This is the thing that will bridge the gap. The songs are amazing. The cause is amazing. 
And so I felt really inspired to do a big piece. So I interviewed Mike from Kill Lincoln and Bad Time Records. I interviewed Mike Park. I interviewed Jeremy. Um, and I also spoke uh, more briefly to a few other bands like Cat Bite, The Best of the Worst, Half Past Two, uh, Bite Me Bambi, I think. And there might have been another. Um, but yeah, so that was, I kind of was like, okay, I want to put a big spotlight on what Bad Time Records is doing and the Scott Against Racism compilation and just sort of like draw, like, kind of like tell some of the history from when people think Scott Punk died up through what's happening today and, you know, and sort of shine a light on as many of bands I could think of that are really making great Scott and Scott Punk today in 2020, now 2021. And along with the article, I did this playlist um, with one song per band and it had over 60 bands on it. And at that point I was like, okay, now we're here. Now we're like, if, if people want, to believe that Scott's not happening. Like you can't, but like here are 60 plus bands and they're doing it right now and they're great at it. And so that was kind of the moment that it all sort of came together. Wow. Yeah. No, I have to thank you because, um, you know, I confess I'm an old head mm-hmm. when it comes to ska, you know, I'm quite a bit older than you. I came of age in the eighties. So, um, my focus is, is on two-tone and a lot of the bands that I wrote about in my book. Um, and I have to tell you that I really appreciate all the hard work that you're putting in um, to sort of shining a light on American ska circa 21st century, because I probably wouldn't have known a lot about these bands without reading your articles in Brooklyn Vegan. So um, uh, I appreciate, and I think a lot of other people appreciate, um, you know, a lot of the work that you put in to educate people and also to, to, to highlight, um, these bands. Um, what I think is sort of interesting for a genre that, that, uh, feels often like it, it doesn't get, uh, a lot of the credit it deserves is that there, <laughs> there continue to be schisms within the ska American ska community, right? I think it still breaks down in, in some ways between people who are into what I guess we could call quote unquote traditional ska and ska punk. Right. And, and so I, I do think it's sort of interesting that there are people I know who won't take the time to listen to these bands because they feel it's too, as you said before, a little bit too indie for, for them. Whereas I feel like the great thing about ska music is how mutable it is and how it can adapt and change and, and how it's still here. And, you know, your coverage in Brooklyn Vegan, I think, is testament to that, to the fact that, as you said, you know, here's 60 bands you might not even know about who are playing ska music. That's where I think some of my friends have to sort of get their heads out of the sand a a little bit. You know, I understand the reluctance of people who are a little bit older and, and listen to trad more traditional ska or ska from the eighties and and early nineties. But I think, you know, as you've pointed out, there's so much out there that there's bound to be something that's going to appeal to a variety of people of different tastes in ska. Do you, do you, kind of agree with me on that? Yeah, that's how I feel. And I intentionally tried to, I mean, the playlist has bands from multiple countries and multiple subgenres within ska. Obviously it's American centric because I'm American. And I just think like, you know, like I said, it's not even the easiest stuff to find in the first place. So I don't think it's surprising that the American stuff found me easiest because, you know, I live here. Um, but again, it's all over, the, all across the board, multiple styles, multiple countries. And yeah, I think that was sort of my goal is to be like, there's got to be something for you in here. 
Um, and I know exactly what you mean. I mean, I see it with, even with, you know, my friends, I mean, I, most of my friends who like ska came up in the ska punk era like me, but a lot of them are just like, yeah, ska's dead. And I'm often not only trying to push the new bands, but something like your book has been amazing because like, I think your book helps fill in a lot of blanks for people around my age who maybe don't know that like, there's no Operation Ivy without the uptones, for example. Um, and I try to like tell that story as much as I can too, and be like, yeah, like I know if you're of a certain age, it can all sort of revolve around the nineties ska punk era, but something I like to push is it kept going. And it also started way before that. And it never stopped from between the 1950s and sixties and the nineties. Like I, you know, I think a lot of uh, even people, I think there's sometimes even just an idea that like it was a short lived thing in Jamaica. It got revived in the UK in the late seventies and then it popped up in America in the nineties. And I think your book was fantastic for being like, no, it was a lot more gradual than that. There's really no time where there wasn't ska. So. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, I completely agree with you. And again, that's why I think what you're doing is very important because you are um, covering this, what I would think right now is, is a pretty significant time or era for ska music, not just here in the U.S., but kind of globally. I know um, you turned me on to this uh, new band from Brazil, Scabric. Abracadabra. Yeah. Yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, and I and I think it's it's great that we can get a little bit American centric sometimes. And the fact is, you know, there are ska scenes around the world, and you know, some might even argue that Mexico has the best ska scene, even better than than what we have here. Um, but you know, I pre- I appreciate that that you are shining a light on it. You know, on globally. Um, kind of a inside baseball question for you, but what, if you can share, and I understand if you can't, but what is the engagement like uh, on your, your ska articles? Are, are people engaged? Do you get decent numbers? I mean, is there, is there an audience for the, for what you're writing about? And if so, is it, is it engaged and is it, you know, steady or growing? Yeah. So uh, there definitely is. And that surprised me pleasantly, but it did surprise me. I mean, um, when I wrote that first article on the the classic ska punk albums, I was like, you know, this could just ruin my career. Like this could make <laughs> me the laughing stock of like, you know, the music writer, Twitter or whatever. Um, I might just come off as like people like, all right, Andrew's jumped the shark. He's, he's officially not cool at all. And I no longer care what he has to say. Um, but it went over really well. And I think part of the reason was, that I think there are a lot of people like me who really love those records who maybe, you know, checked out of ska when the, it, the popularity died down, but didn't stop liking it, you know, just kind of like listen to other stuff and like maybe wasn't thinking about it as much. Um, so that went over really well and everything we've kept doing, it's like continued to go over well. That article where I, you know, spoke to Mike Park and Mike Zizinski and Jeremy, um, that was like, people were really excited about that. Like when I was kind of like, I, I basically like, if I could sum up the article in one sentence, it's basically just like Scott's happening right now. And like, here's a look at it. And people were like, so stoked. They were like, yes, this is great. I'm so happy someone is talking about this. Um, and there are of course some haters because there always are. And especially when it's Scott, right. You're going to have like the very typical, like the mozzarella stick meme or the Brooklyn nine, nine gif. And just like people being like, Oh no, like Scott should go back to dead or like whatever. But like, that's kind of been the minority. Um, 
And the, the overwhelming positivity has really been like the main response. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. That's, that was sort of my, my takeaway. Um, are any of the haters from within the ska community though? I'm sort of interested if, you know, is that something that you've noticed? Do you get any criticism about the, your focus on, you know, on the bad time label or bands sort of associated with that versus any other bands within the scene that are, you know, maybe have been plugging away for a while before, but, but might say that they don't get similar amounts of coverage from you? Yeah, for sure. Um, so recently we published an article and the headline was 64 essential sky albums from 1964 to present. And I wrote it with Aaron Carnes who wrote in defensive ska, uh, Jeremy Hunter, ska to network. Um, the writer I mentioned earlier, whose pen name is Klaus Kinski. One of the other Brooklyn vegan editors, Bill, who's a huge two tone guy. Um, and, um, yeah, it was it. Anyway, so we, we we tried to make a list that went from 60s Jamaica to 2021. Um, and, you know, it got a little like American heavy and it got a little ska punk heavy. Um, and there was some criticism about that for sure, uh, especially on ska Reddit, which is like a lot meaner than ska Twitter. <laughs> um, but um, and then, yeah, there have been people who are like, OK, like clearly you love the bad time record scene. Well, what about these bands who have been around for 20 years and maybe a little more traditional or a little more like soul ska and like, and it's like, obviously, you know, I, I try my best to be as inclusive and as all encompassing as possible. Um, ultimately I am just one person and my personal tastes will always have a little bit of bias there. Um, but you know, like it's, there's been that criticism, but the way I just look at it is like, you know, I really do think that we're really trying to tell a story here. And I, again, I think we're one website and I'm one person and, you know, it doesn't have to start and end with anything that I write. Like if that list, if you looked at our list of 64 sky albums and you're like, this is missing 30 important albums, I'm like, okay, then go make your own list. Like, and that would be great. I would love to see more. So I, I really try to stress whenever I can that like, you know, it's a starting point. And I, and I what I hope is that if you are looking for ska, if you're looking to learn more about it, a list like that could be really enlightening. You might not realize that, you know, I mean, like you might not know who like Laurel Aitken is. You might not realize Bob Marley was a ska musician. Like you might not listen to Bad Manners. Um, so it's, again, it's a starting point. And so I, I try to take all the criticism with a grain of salt and just kind of tell myself that, you know, we're, we're doing something that we believe in. Totally. I, I loved that. That list. First of all, I, I should confess, I'm like a, a listaholic. Me too. I, mean, um, <laughs> I figured as much because I know that you you regularly post, you know, five new ska songs to listen to now or six new ska, ska albums mm -hmm. to listen to now, which I think is a great way to engage people and educate them and have a point of view about about the music that's out, out there now. But, you know, I used to um, love, you know, Rolling Stone magazine when it actually seemed like it had a point of view and, and something to say. That was, you know, my generation's, you know, Brooklyn vegan, essentially. And they would post album lists all the time. And I would buy that magazine solely to read those, those lists. So I love lists. And you, you know, my impression is you can never win with a list. Right. You are always going to piss somebody off, right? Um, so I, I think it was very cool that you decided to do that. Um and to have, you know, your bands and you're right, you're one person and Brooklyn Vegan is one, 
one um, outlet, and and this is your point of view on that, and and the fact that you might have pissed some people off or people criticized you for not including certain albums to me is a very good sign. You know, it means that they're actually paying attention, <laughs> right? And um, and uh, you know that that's good for you, and that's good for for Brooklyn Vegan, and ultimately, I think that's good for keeping the ska scene healthy. Um, I'm just again curious. Was there good engagement from that um, article? Did you have good, good, good numbers from from people um, checking that out online? Yeah, it went over well. It was popular. That's great. Um, look, you know, as a as a lifelong ska fan, I'm happy that anything that we can do to engage current fans or bring new people in and educate them um, is important. Uh, so, you know, I thought that was very cool and you actually beat me to it. That was a question I was going to ask you about, mm. um, you know, a- a- along those lines, Andrew, you know, what's your take on American ska in 2021? You know, I think you've had a, um, a great bird's eye view of everything that's happened this year. And this year seemed particularly, um, important, not only with, you know, three books, um, on ska, three very different books on ska coming up, but also just different bands releasing music. Based on you know everything you've heard, everything you've read, you know all the things that you've reported on. Where do you think American ska is headed? If you had to make a prediction, hmm. Well, I've never been very good at telling the future, but <laughs> um, so this might be wishful thinking. But what? So to go back to something I said earlier about. The Interrupters had that hit, and I'm like, okay, whenever there's a hit, like, that's the tip of the iceberg. So, and I think, like, if we look at music history, that's always been the case, right? Like, when Nirvana got huge with Nevermind, that was not the end of alternative rock. It was the basically the beginning, as far as, you know, people in the mainstream were concerned. It was just, where can we find more like this? So I think, um, you know, if She's Kerosene is really reaching people who just have no idea about what's going on in ska right now. I'm hoping like, you know, maybe we are the union is going to trickle through or kill Lincoln or Catbite is, is going to like, you know, kind of get picked up by one of the sort of, I mean, we're trying our best to do it. Right. I'm trying to say like, Hey, like listen, but you know, I mean, Brooklyn vegan is not as powerful as radio. Um, and obviously, you know, the interrupters have sort of the power of epitaph records, which, um, can obviously reach very far. Um, but yeah, that's kind of just what I hope. I just hope that, um, that the success of that band leads to other people thinking like, I like this and I want more like this. And I, you know, and then hopefully finding bad time records. And like, you know, if you look at sort of when the punk scene blew up in the nineties, like, you know, like, so like, even if you just look at like when Dookie came out on a major label and then very shortly after that, you had like the offspring and rancid put out records on epitaph records, which then was just kind of a small independent label. And those records are really just as big. So I'm like, you know, I don't know. I mean, even Asian man records was putting out like popular stuff like at that time because there was so much interest. So I'm hoping maybe bad time records can be like the new Asian man records and like some of their bands can, you know, kind of, like a rising tide lifts all boats, right? Hopefully those will be the boats. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I think um, there's potentially something to the Bad Time Records story. It does f- certainly feel like they're potentially on the cusp of something big or that one of their bands may break out. It certainly feels like that to me based on 
everything I read and everything I hear and just the the general zeitgeist, I think, about American ska. It seems like they have their finger right now on the pulse of um, what American ska is. At least that's how I, you know, my take on it. Um, so I think I think you're probably right. Um, uh, you know, for people who might be listening who aren't familiar with a lot of, of bands that you're writing about right now, could you just name a few that you think um, fans of ska or potential fans of ska should be checking out? Like, are there a couple that you feel particularly strong about in terms of their their songwriting or their you know performance or th- the fact that they have sort of something important to say? Totally. Um, I think for sure my, my kind of like big three for myself at least are, uh, we are the union kill Lincoln and cat bite. Um, I mean, uh, we are the union's new record is really the whole package. It's like, it's innovative, but it also is nostalgic. Um, it's, it's really sort of genre defying, um, and read the singer, it's kind of the first record that she's put out since coming out as a trans woman. And she tells that story on the record and um, along with other sort of tracks about mental health and stuff. And it's just a really sort of lyrically powerful album. Um, and then Catbite are great. They have kind of more of like a two-tone vibe mixed with kind of like some garage rock and some like the clash in there. And like, I think they're a great one if, you know, you're not so into the Scott punk thing, but maybe you're, you're a little bit into the, more of the eighties era. I think Cap, I put a real fresh spin on it. Um, and then kill Lincoln are just like the best nineties Scott punk band who didn't form in the nineties. Like, I think they are like just as good as less than Jake, just as good as suicide machines. Like it's just, they're a little bit later, but they, they make me feel the way those records did back then. <laughs> it's really funny. Um, I have a, a, an odd connection to kill Lincoln. Um, Drew Skibitsky who is a member of the band, uh, used to book, uh, like ska shows at his church in, um, in New Jersey, um, back in the early two thousands. And he, he loved a band that I was in called Bigger Thomas. And I occasionally see him in Kill Lincoln promo photos with a Bigger Thomas t-shirt on, which makes me laugh every time I, I see him wearing it because, Kill Lincoln is about as far away from Bigger Thomas. You know, we were like basically a two-tone band. Um, but the but the fact that he wears that always um, makes me laugh be- because I think that's sort of where his initial interest in ska music came from. These, you know, shows we'd play at his church, you know, on a Friday or Saturday night. Um, but tell me a little bit more about them because out of the three bands you mentioned, they're the one I really haven't listened to. What is it about them? You know, you said they're the best 90s ska punk band, not from the 90s. What is it about their sound or what is it about their that what they're singing about that, that you find so appealing? So, well, they're definitely, what they're, as far as what they're singing about, I mean, they definitely, um, there's a lot in there for sure. Um, you know, there are personal songs and there are definitely some songs that kind of take aim at some of the injustice we've been seeing in the world. And so I do, I do like that they, you know, they, they've made ska punk that sounds really fun, but they do remember where ska came from. That ska is a political genre of music, which I think some of the bigger 90s ska punk bands didn't do. Um, but they just, it's one of those like, sort of intangible things where they just sound so fresh. Like I'll put that record on that they put out most recently. Um, can't complain. 
And then I'll go revisit like one of my favorite 90s ska punk albums. And sometimes I'm like, wow, like, I don't know, the Kill Lincoln album, like it improves upon it. Like it doesn't, cause you know, sometimes you just hear something and you're like, okay, this band obviously like did their homework and they like these four or five great ska bands and they sound like them. But Kill Lincoln, like you can point out influences for sure, but they just, they play it in a way that like, it's like, it's almost like if you didn't know any better, like they play it like they invented it. Um, they just, it's less retro and more like, like a course correction. Like, it's just like, like as if they like, they're like the ideal version of what 90s ska punk could have been if it didn't sort of evolve into the sort of like stereotypes of Hawaiian shirts and like all the kind of negative aspects that came a little bit later in the 90s. Sure. So, so in your mind, they integrated sort of the best uh, elements of '90s ska punk, and then sort of improved upon it. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, I'll give them a listen based on your uh, on your description just now, and you know, purely for the fact that Drew wears a bigger Thomas T-shirt. <laughs> right. Um, so you're going to be moderating uh, the Ska Lives panel um, this coming Monday. So for anyone listening, we're recording this. Uh, last week of September. So um, Andrew's going to be moderating this Scholars panel on Monday, October 4th. That's going to include me, Aaron Carnes, the author of In Defense of Ska, and Ken Partridge, whose book Hell of a Hat just came out. A um, couple questions for you on this. Uh, why do you think this event is important? And, you know, why is Brooklyn Vegan sort of interested in, in sponsoring something like this? Sure. Um, I mean, again, I, I think, you know, all three books are great. Um, I think it's awesome that they all came out within a short period of time. I think that you, Aaron and Ken are all experts and you all have your own lanes, um, different perspectives. I think it's going to be a great conversation. Um, Aaron brought the idea to me and I was immediately stoked on it. Um, I just think it'll be a really good opportunity for people to learn a little bit more about 
ska, like the, the history, the the present, and you know, even more importantly, the future. And I just think it's a it's a great. I mean, what it could like it's just you know couldn't be a better group of people to talk about it. The three of you. Yeah, no, I I'm really excited about it. Um, you know, I'll, I'll just say that it's completely coincidental that these three books came right. out at the same time. I mean, completely coincidental. Although it sort of makes sense. I mean, it's it's it it it, it seems appropriate that they would all come out um, so close to one another. What I like is that um, none of them are the same. I mean, it's it's like if three bands put out three albums. Uh, all within a couple months of each other. Um, each one, you know, stands on its own and has a different point of view and, and perspective. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm excited to hear, you know, number one, what it's like for all of us to be together. Cause I, we could all really nerd out on, uh, <laughs> on ska. Um, but I'm also, I'm also, um, interested, you know, at, at, for people who sort of, um, are, are logging in and, and taking part in this, you know, what kind of questions, We'll get, um, you know, I think that that Aaron has done a, a particularly good job of, of sort of building, um, you know, the In Defense of Ska brand uh, online and really expanded it and been, has been really inclusive about uh, sort of in in step with what you are, you are doing at Brooklyn Vegan, which is sort of to embrace a lot of the new sounds of American Ska. Um, and, and I'm also sort of impressed with, with Ken's perspective on on 90s ska and the fact that he incorporated swing which was sort of interesting i just spoke with him about that for a recent episode um so i I think between the three of us and and your perspective it should be um a really interesting um opportunity to to chat um can you just share a little bit more with uh, with me for anyone who's listening you know how, how do people join that where is it taking place the time and all that kind of stuff all the details Oh yeah, sure. And I'll just say, I agree with everything you just said. Um, but yeah, it takes place on the Brooklyn vegan YouTube channel on Monday, October 4th at 7 PM Eastern. Um, there's also an article about it on brooklynvegan.com with more information. Um, and I'll also add that we are Brooklyn vegan is giving away a copy of the new Abracadabra album and we'll be revealing the winner during the stream. So that's a very cool thing. Um, and I'll also add, I'm very thankful for this, that, that you guys have sort of um, put your weight behind our books. So if you're listening and you actually don't have any of these books, it's possible to buy um, all three of them, uh, either individually or as like a uh, super package, I guess, um, from the Brooklyn Vegan website. So, um, you know, I really appreciate that. Uh, it's, it's, it's very cool that... Uh, that Brooklyn Vegan is sort of again, and I'm I'm assuming through you, sort of put your weight behind uh, ska, and you know that these books are sort of added to the whole culture that's um, growing up around American ska in the 21st century. So I want to thank you, um, Andrew. I'm really looking forward to uh, to the event, and um, I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Um, Andrew will be moderating, as we just discussed, Andrew will be moderating the Ska Lives virtual event on the Brooklyn Vegan YouTube page this Monday at 7 p.m. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Ska Boom Interviews. My book is now available from DeWolf Publishing at DeWolf.com. It's also now available on Amazon. And you can also go to the Brooklyn Vegan website and get my book. Um, Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Andrew. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks, Mark. I enjoyed speaking with you, too. 
And to everybody out there, take care.